today is basically a podcast about podcasts with yeah, other podcasters. <laughs> we're also people that work within the same disciplines and overlapping disciplines with us. No, it's very meta and it, it's definitely got me thinking about these these topics and these issues and listening to how they're doing their podcast mm -hmm. versus how we're doing our podcast and, and thinking about how what we're on our episode like 70 or something and they're on episode we're getting there two, two? yeah <laughs> and we're and i sh i should i say two with like some like well it's like fresh I, off the airwaves they just launched this podcast so right but i hear um more thoughtfulness in episode two than we had in our episode 20 right not in terms of like we, it's not that we weren't thoughtful but in terms of having some different segments and things that would grab people's interests like a thoughtfulness mm. about and I think we were thoughtful but in different ways and we've sort of done this over the years but I guess my point is that no one taught us how to do this yeah. I was never trained on science communication I was certainly never trained on how to do a podcast and we just sort of intuit a fair amount of it on our own and then when we hear a professional podcaster or see them we we ask for pointers or, or outright steal their, their bits. I think these are perfect examples of dissent with modification from episode <laughs> to episode to episode. <laughs> anyway, so we've alluded to the folks that we're bringing on. Let's actually bring up who they are. So we're going to be talking to the creators, producers of Anthrolactology, which is a brand new podcast put out by Anjali Palmquist, EA Quinn, and Cecilia Tamori. So... Everybody, welcome to the Sausage of Science. This is our biggest interview. Wait, is Archelie right? joining us? She's already in, but not here. Big. Yeah, I'm oh, not, shit. I mean, I can put my video on, but um, I'm in my closet. Oh, for sound quality. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, if you're okay with it, it helps us to know like when you might want to talk, so we don't try to see you in the closet. <laughs> if you're not dark. okay with it. See. Professional <laughs> podcaster already knows the trick. There we go. Yeah. Oh, that's Hi. not bad at all. Hi. <laughs> now we can judge your wardrobe. I'm just depressed she could get in her closet. I can't get in my closet. We have a like a pretty it's like a sort of a mini walk-in type of closet. My husband is a documentary film producer so he's all nerding out on me he's like if you're gonna do this at home you have to go in the closet and like wow. hang up draperies and clothes <laughs> we were just talking about how we're learning science communication and, pu and public engagement in our careers as we go along Karen and I and everything I know about podcasting I've learned from listening to other people get meta on their own podcasts and talk about how they get their sound quality improved if they can't afford to buy a mic and that's that's numero uno go in the closet or put a blanket over your head mm -hmm. yeah. my husband just had to record a workshop for an improv thing and he literally stapled blankets all around the dining room Cats loved it. It became nothing. Yeah. But them. Uh, anyway, so welcome everybody to what is likely our largest interview with three people brought onto the show today. So welcome to the Sausage of Science. And what we're going to ask you to do is to introduce each of your, yourself to say who you are and where you're from or where you're at right now. And then we'll kind of go from there. So I'm going to go in order of my screen. And so Cecilia, you are the first one. <laughs> You wouldn't mind starting us off. I was wondering which of us was the person. <laughs> um, so my name is Cecilia Tamori. I'm originally from Hungary. I live in the U.S. now, and I am at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. I'm the director of global public health and community health. 
Ooh. Anjali, you are next on my screen. I'm Anjali Palmquist. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Maternal and Child Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Yeah. And you That's are currently it. in your closet. I'm currently in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, EA. My name is EA Quinn. I am an associate professor of anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. All right. And so another disclosure. So EA had what? You were a faculty member for like two years? We overlapped for maybe two years at WashU? Yes. Was it three. Yeah. So when I was a grad student at WashU is when WashU brought EA on. So I've known EA for quite some time. So it's sad that this is only the first time we've brought you on the show, to be honest. <laughs> and but EA is now the treasurer of the Human Biology Association. So and EA is part of a department that just hired one of our producers, Teresa Gildner. <laughs> <laughs> so you all are putting together and doing the Anthrolactology podcast. So tell us what this podcast is, first of all. I'll go first. Several years ago, I started a blog called Anthrolactology, which was, we established it after the three of us convened a session at the AAAs on really to reinvigorate the engagement of anthropologists with the human lactation and breastfeeding space. And I was blogging by myself for a while and was just like unable to kind of keep up with the writing after I got a new job and brought EA on because she had been doing her own blog, Biomarkers and Milk. Decided we would kind of formally join forces. We brought Cecilia on too. And then I guess very shortly after that, EA is like, we need to start a podcast because like blogging is so passe and everybody's doing podcasts now. <laughs> like it's a more year effective. And a half later, we actually did a blog a podcast. It took us a year and a half to get our acts together. Yeah. So, so it's really EA's sort of uh, brainchild, and we've been very much like you described, talking to people who already had been doing podcasts to get tips on what is it that we need to do to make this happen. We have two episodes up so far and we're getting ready to drop another one very, very soon. Yeah, it's the Cecilia episode coming yeah. out. So let's <laughs> let's do this because I know you do a little bit of this on your podcast. And the way we always start off is we sort of hybridize here asking you about the origins of your podcast, but we always want to know about the people. And I know there's three of you, but still, we know Cecilia's from Hungary. So let's start there. And then I want to hear about your origins and how y'all got into anthropology and then specifically this topic that the three of you converge on. I grew up in Hungary. I had no idea what anthropology was and uh, didn't really have it in that form. Eventually somehow figured it out after many, many years of, you know, wandering around in the wilderness and learning English was a pivotal factor and then ended up doing a degree. And I think, you know, I always was very interdisciplinary. And so, you know, anthropology was a pretty good fit. And, you know, now I've added public health to that. So, so, so wait, so that sounds very hand wavy. What wilderness did you wander around in? Where did you learn English and where'd you get that? Um, okay, so yeah, I didn't want to get all, you know, all too deep in the wilderness. But I learned English in New Jersey. I, it was after the Iron Curtain basically was mm -hmm. fell. And, you know, we were able to, you know, go places and stay and study and, and do things that we couldn't do before. And so I was in New Jersey and basically got a crash course in American, you know, educational system. Didn't really plan to stay, kind of applied to college because, you know, why not apply to college sure. in both places? And then, you know, ended up at Swarthmore. Still didn't really know much about the whole social science piece. I think it takes a long 
long time, you know, if you come from a place where that just doesn't really exist. And so I think I was searching for something that was in the social science, it was across, you know, social mm-hmm. sciences and natural sciences. I thought I was going to do biology. I thought, you know, I was going to do teaching, you know, I had I have a teaching degree from that time. And then, you know, I realized I really did want to be in this other space, you know, that I was learning about, I was getting more interested in social sciences once I figured out what that really was. And after I graduated from Swarthmore is when I started really exploring what these options were. And so I really was choosing between sociology and anthropology, knew I wanted to do something around medical anthropology, but again, still that was all new to me. And then I ended up at Michigan, which is a four fields anthropology department that was kind of the the key there is that, you know, as soon as I arrived, even though my project was proposed, that was more sociocultural. I also had a biology degree. And so I was teaching in bioanthro and sociocultural anthro at the same time. And so those, you know, those kind of cross subfield and cross disciplinary conversations were always part of my work. And so it was a pause for a second so Kara can gloat. Yes, because Michigan comes up in almost every single podcast (laughs) because it's a massive program that has had a huge impact on the field and that it's not hard to trace so many of us back to the University of Michigan. Who was your advisor? I had multiple, right? Because I'm so interdisciplinary. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Jillian Feely-Harnick and Tom Fricke. And Jillian Feely-Harnick is a very interdisciplinary person herself. She's a kinship scholar, but someone who was very integrative and was working on a book about Darwin's pigeons at the time. So, you know, it was just a very natural fit for mm-hmm. the two of us to, to connect. You know, I was like, of course, Darwin's pigeons. I mean, that makes total sense to me. Oh. And so, you know, so kinship and relatedness and the different kinds of relatedness and history and deep history were very much part of my training. And then I also had the fantastic Marsha Inhorn as my primary medical anthropologist Mm. uh, advisor who's my main mentor on you know what I actually do I had Alicia Rennie who's another wonderful medical anthropologist I had um, Rada Fries who's who is uh, sociology slash childbirth slash bioethics I mean you know so I had that's quite a wilderness you've got all kinds of people tucked away under rocks and trees in that. I actually had a linguistic anthropologist advisor too. So I covered three out of four subfields. I didn't do archaeology that much. I did Michigan difference, Chris. Tell me. A couple of seminars, but I didn't, you know, but I did a lot actually in linguistic anthropology as well. So, you know, and our degrees are so long since we are basically writing a book. You know, I was there for a very long time. So I had, Mm -hmm. I had a very long you know, quality time at Michigan, taught tons, um, and then ended up in a postdoc in public health. So that covers most of my disciplines. EA, how about you? So I think I had a probably very linear path compared (laughs) to a lot of other people. I, well, I guess my random fun fact is I didn't actually graduate from high school. I went to college as a, instead of my senior year of high school. So admit early and then. Where are you from? Atlanta. So did it, they not confer you like a high school diploma? Did that not happen? So, <laughs> for many years, I thought that I had in fact escaped high school without a high school diploma. And then my mom got really drunk at my brother's wedding and let it <laughs> slip that in fact, I did have a high school diploma. <laughs> she had forged my signature on all the paperwork. 
That's an interesting drug disclosure, Mom. <laughs> and also, like, why would she have to do that? <laughs> was she afraid you wouldn't want to or, like, try to keep it a secret? Oh, no, I was adamant involved? that I was not getting a degree from that hellhole. Uh, Damn you, Mom. Okay. <laughs> Damn high school diploma. Take it and put it on your own wall. <laughs> so, so, the joke no longer makes sense. I still crack it in all of my classes. And then I did my undergraduate degree at Emory University. And I was very fortunate to have Georgia Melgus as one of my undergrad mentors. And then I uh, had done some stable isotope work with the collection of Sudanese mummies that are um, from the University of Colorado that George also worked on. And then kind of really through probably spending a lot of quality time with Amanda Thompson, who was in the lab a lot. Uh, transitioned to human biology because um, live kids are so much more interesting. <laughs> you know, I really enjoy getting to talk to people as part of doing the pure research. And so I then did my PhD at Northwestern and then went, as Kara already said, straight to Washington University in St. Louis in 2011. We haven't had as many Emory connections as we would, as I would have thought originally. Mm -hmm. So you might just be the second besides our producer, Caroline Owens, who's who came out of Amanda Thompson's lab and is now there. So anyway, sorry, digression. Yeah, I mean, I think back to the group that I actually kind of came up with. And um, Jamie Edwards is a, or like the, the, the cohort, for lack of a better term, of undergraduates. And I call that because we all just spent a lot of time together in George Romelagus's lab. And Jamie Edwards is a forensic anthropologist now. Jim Millett's a primatologist. Nick Pineson is a whale biologist, whatever wow. the technical term for that is. <laughs> um, Kylie Lease is, is an anthropologist at uh, UIC. So we have a list, Kara. There was uh -huh. five of us that all went in and all went into PhD programs in a two-year time period, which is pretty high. Yeah. yeah for an undergrad department that's not huge or even for that's, a big undergrad that's, department. That's taking kids right out of high school with no diploma, especially. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think about it, like Michigan had a huge undergrad program and I think I was the only one of my cohort to pursue a PhD through to completion. A couple started and stopped at master's and, and left programs. And so five coming out, that is, that is a, five coming out in a two year yeah. time period, five, yeah. five that went on to graduate school and all have PhDs now. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've been at uh, WashU for the last, it'll be nine years in about a month and a half. Congrats. So. That's wonderful to like get to a place and stay at a place and really build something. That's really great to hear. Provided that's what you wanted to do. No, it's, it's a great place. <laughs> <laughs> also, you have a baby. Yes. Who is yes. not like so, so baby anymore, but still baby. No, I have a nine-month-old, and yeah. he's being driven around the block because he was screaming. <laughs> I I understand, and I I, I want to come back to that because I because your your personal experience is integrated with your your research and your in your podcast, and Karen and I do that a lot. Too much. But before we go there, Anjali, tell us about you. Yeah, so I also have a four-field history. My undergrad is from University of Louisville, and it was there so you're that- you're from Kentucky, right? I moved to Kentucky when I was 10. I was born in Philadelphia, raised in Thailand and Saudi Arabia. Mm. We moved to um, Fort Lauderdale when I was five. And then um, when I was 10, we moved up to, to Louisville. I started college as a piano performance major. I, I was such a, I was like a drama 
music nerd in high school. And I thought that was what I was going to do. And then I got to college and had to do, you know, like the electives for social sciences and um, took an intro to anthropology course with a professor. She was like a postdoc at the Natural History Museum, a biological anthropologist, a primatologist. And she was just amazing. When I got into that class, I was just like, this was awesome. Like, I want to do this. I don't want to sit in the practice room for eight hours a day. (laughs) Everybody else is having fun. I want to like go out and be in the world. So took a class in uh, medical anthropology, which was taught by a, a biological anthropologist and so I just I love Russell Reed and it was amazing and he taught it from a very biocultural ecological perspective I took nutritional anthropology courses from him as well and I also had the privilege of taking like an African-American anthropology course by Dr. Yvonne Jones who is a black anthropologist at the time and I didn't really realize like how important informative that was to be taking that course taught by a black anthropologist at the in the 90s and i just like the ability to integrate this you know social science with biological science and use these ecological perspectives was just so intellectually satisfying to me that I knew by the time I graduated, I wanted to go do something in the area of applied slash medical anthropology. Um, I knew at that time I wanted to um, do Southeast Asian studies. My heritage is Thai. And so I was, I did a, a study abroad as an undergrad and knew I wanted to study Thai language. I wanted to do field work in Thailand. And so I was trying to search for a program that had like medical anthropology, biocultural emphasis, and Southeast Asian studies or Thai language. And at that time, there were only five universities I could choose from. So I applied to all of them and ended up going to the University of Hawaii at Manoa um, to pursue my master's and PhD. Who'd you work with there? Uh, Nina Etkin. Jocelyn Lindenkin was also on my master's committee. I worked closely with Nancy Lewis, medical geographer. And then I had um, Mike Petrzewski, Miriam Stark as other um, anthros, biological anthro and um, archaeologist on my committee. I, I love that campus. Yeah, I love my time there. I know Cecilia was like, she was at Michigan a long time. I was like, yeah, I was at Hawaii a long time too. <laughs> I like to stop off different at the reasons. East. I had all the intentions of doing um, my doctoral studies with an emphasis on Thailand, Southeast Asian studies. But another long story, I ended up switching to do research in Micronesia. And that's where I did my dissertation field work. Um, I did work in Palau. And then from there, I, I did a postdoc at the NIH, the National Human Genome Research Institute for two years. And then a uh, a second postdoc at Yale University in their global health program. Wow. Um, Why do you say so, it like that? I, well, I mean, it's just a little, I had a really long trajectory. I didn't go from my PhD to a tenure track job. It took a long time. Um, at the time I was, uh, I had graduated in 2006, finally, um, with my doctorate and places just weren't hiring and they weren't hiring folks with my either area studies expertise or my topical expertise. So it took me a long time to well, land a tenure track job. Right during the big financial meltdown as well. You were right before that. So yeah, that's rough. That's really rough. I managed to have two really great opportunities. And actually the interesting thing is when I was at Yale, Marcia Inhorn was my advisor. And so she's the one who actually introduced me to Cecilia. Mm. (laughs) Uh, We always ask that question, both because we're personally interested, but because we've learned over the last few years that a lot of our listeners are grad students and Mm -hmm. Most of us, and I think them, this sort of typifies them to feel insecure about our various trajectories. And there's a 
a misconception about a linear pathway through. So we want to normalize all these various experiences that we have on our, our journeys. Yeah. So thank you. So the podcast, Anthrolactology. So it started as a blog with Anjali and then EA gave the big old push to, to push it into a podcast. So what is kind of the overarching goal of the podcast? So we do have listeners who are not anthropologists or biologists in any way. So or lactologists. Is- or lactology. So what is anthrolactology and what do you think the scope of this podcast is? We'll put this on EA because it was your idea. Well, <laughs> we, have, we, do, we do video. Microphone to make sure I would answer. We do video so you can point at each other. And, and... <laughs> because that'll work so well. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess as you said, there's a lot of yourself that ends up getting put into these podcasts. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time and there just weren't any breastfeeding podcasts. Hmm. And yet I was hearing in, in these other like infertility or, or reproductive biology podcasts, a lot of misinformation about lactation. And so I just kind of approached Anjali and Cecilia and I was like, what, what if we just podcast? <laughs> what if we just tried it? And we said, yeah, let's do it. And then we were kind of like, well, let's look into it. Let's, let's get a plan. Let's get a strategy. So we really kind of mapped out what it was going to be about and what our goals were, what we wanted it to be, how we wanted the language to be inclusive, how we wanted the science to be inclusive, how we wanted it to be an opportunity to kind of dig into some issues in lactation research, both just with kind of the, you know, here's why this is important here's the research, but also kind of actually starting to highlight that in the kind of broader medical research and literature like that, there's not really a lot of emphasis on this kind of integration between breastfeeding and human milk. The Mm. human milk gets valorized and breastfeeding doesn't quite get the same attention or vice versa. And so to kind of bring an anthropological lens and actually start talking about that. I want to ask about the, I just listened to the episode two. I haven't, I haven't gotten, uh, so I'm, I listen to a lot of podcasts too, and I'm a year behind. So I jumped ahead <laughs> in my list to listen to your most recent episode, but I still haven't listened to your first episode. So I apologize if I don't touch on that as much, but the idea of shared milk is, is one of the things that actually you talked about a lot, which my kids are 16 now, but I have triplets. And so the idea of mothers having the stigma and taboo potential around milk sharing, and then some of the information that you actually found in surveying or, or talking to women just, just fascinated me. So one, one, I'd love it if you guys allowed us to like bonus share that episode on our podcast. And two, I, even if you say yes, I would love to hear a little bit more about that research. Yeah, I, I think that'd be awesome if you shared that with your audience. Um, I'm sure Cecilia and EA would say okay too. So I was, this is the sort of the story that I share in that episode, but I I had an, a baby. I was nursing my first child um, as this was during my postdoc. And um, we had a bit of a rough go initially. I didn't, at that time, I didn't, I didn't know there was such thing as like a, a lactation consultant that I could have to help me with breastfeeding. We were in the middle of New Haven with nobody. We had no social networks. No, I had no friends. Uh, we, I was just, we were pretty isolated on my own. And so I turned to like Google and Facebook a lot to find out information about breastfeeding for better or for worse. And I had just become pregnant. So my daughter was was um, around nine and a half, 10 months old. And I was pregnant with our second child. And I 
one, I really was interested in this thing called tandem nursing, where you can be nursing your infant or toddler while you're pregnant and then continue nursing both of them afterwards. That didn't work out for me in that way. But during that Google search, I, this story, this new story in the Washington Post popped up around milk sharing on the internet. And I was like, I, what is this? never heard anything about this. And, you know, I've, I'm an anthropologist. I was, I was actually in the breastfeeding and infant feeding literature at that time. I was like, I've never heard anything about this. Why not? So I was trying to do all these like literature searches and there wasn't really, there was so little written about maternal nursing in the biological anthropology literature, even around breastfeeding and cultural practices. There was like very little in the ethnographic record about these practices that I could find and very little contemporary, you know, anthropological engagement with that topic. So I decided I was just going to like kind of informally just do this thing where I would check in a couple times a week to these different Facebook sites where people were sharing milk and learn about what was happening. So I, it was informal, but it was very systematic. And so I was like archiving, like pub, this is all like publicly posted posts, you know, donors saying I have milk, recipients saying I, I need milk. And to just kind of get a sense of what was happening and how people were util, utilizing the, this internet space and the social networking to facilitate milk sharing. For me, it just fulfilled all the check the boxes, you know, like this really interesting um, physiological lactation physiology piece around um, milk production and what is happening to create this very strong need for human milk, this demand, right, in this milk sharing economy, along with the, the people who are making like so much milk that they could donate to a bank or share with other people. So that the lactation physiology piece was new and interesting to me at that time. And then all of this around the language, around the culture, around the kinship, around the metaphors, around all of those things that people were doing socially in that social interaction that were just like really rich places to think anthropologically. And so I, I just decided I'm going to apply for a grant to study this and I want to do it in a way that allows me to do it ethnographically because some other folks were doing some research that was more um, survey based and people were publishing about milk sharing at that time with no like no engagement with um, actual people who are milk sharing. So lots of commentaries and editorials and op-eds, but really nothing that was on the ground. And so that's what I thought, you know, the anthropological contribution could be there. Uh, so Wintergren funded my three-year ethnographic study of milk sharing. And we did it, we did like a survey. We did with like, we collected lots of really um, detailed lactation information. In this time, I became an international board certified lactation consultant. Mm. So I got training to be a, like a clinical lactation consultant. So I have like a really detailed survey. We did ethnographic interviews. We did telephone interviews. And then at the end, we collected milk and um, you know, examined sort of differences in bacteria and different kinds of bioactives in milk. It was so interesting to me, like all yeah. aspects. <laughs> I have thousands of questions, but there's three of you, so I don't want to. But, but one, one I, I want to put out there that occurred to me in listening to this right now is how you think and this is me asking you to be those people that you're, you, you noted were making comments, but as a, as a lactation consultant, you, you do have the expertise. How is COVID-19 impacting that community in milk sharing? From what I understand, they are keeping track of what the guidance is in general for breastfeeding one's own child and looking at the guidance for donating to milk banks and expressing milk and adapting it. So there isn't formal guidance for sharing of human milk. And I think, in fact, there are um, several medical or, um, 
organizations or associations that are going to be coming out with guidance recommending not to do it. But their adapt. My understanding is doing things like paying more attention to um, pumping hygiene, um, washing containers, um, quarantining milk before giving it away or before using it. So those kinds of things. But I just I wrote a chapter in our um, edited volume, breastfeeding new anthropological approaches, the social life of passive immunity, and this is like this the COVID nineteen pandemic is a really interesting I think a permutation of some of those themes where people who are who are really invested in um, providing their child with their own milk or someone else's human milk do so because of how they understand their understanding of immunology and the importance of human milk and protecting infants health and I think that is being invoked quite a lot from my understanding mm-hmm. people who are have been diagnosed with COVID-19 and recovered or promoted, like I have milk to give. Mm. I, I, I survived COVID. You know, it's got antibodies. Mm. Who can I give this milk to? Oh, Those wow. kinds of things. Yeah. Wow. Well, when we assess some of that with the survey we did and the, the yeah. to the survey will be coming out to the original cohort of moms who participated. Yeah. So yeah, why don't you talk about the survey, Ia, because you've actually had a chance to look at the data. Just to give you a frame for it. I'd love <laughs> to hear you talk about it as the scientist and then you have a podcast, so how will you frame that for the public? To be honest, we haven't had a ton of time to analyze. Um, hopefully, beginning of next week when finals are over, to be doing a lot of the kind of um, heavy lifting. But the reality is, I've kind of been taking some of the lead on this, and I have a nine month old, and I have no child care. Uh, <laughs> and I have a husband that's an essential worker for the state of Illinois. So the amount of st- stuff that happens at the end of an academic term plus the survey means that it, the survey is forward as quickly as we would have hoped. And so maybe you can also just give a little bit of context because I believe this is what you all posted on in the Human Biology Association Facebook page and Twitter that you are doing a study on COVID-19 and the impact on families. Could you give like a one or two sentence this sure. is what this was? <laughs> sure. so, and are you still collecting data as well to make sure that's uh, we are. Okay. We are. So what the study actually was looking at was how infant feeding decisions are being influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's been a lot of um, conversation in the news about formula shortages. So, you know, having a baby I'm in a lot of these online Facebook groups and a lot of women interest in delaying weaning or weaned out of concerns for um, the immunological formula shortages. And so the researcher in me was like, Ooh, let's, Oh, this is some kind of cool stuff I'm seeing. So we developed the survey around that to really get at changes in behavior um, and those changes, including the areas that we're all interested in, milk sharing practices, uh, sleep practices related to the infant and um, healthcare workers, Hmm. uh, particularly how healthcare workers were managing and navigating and making uh, decisions about pumping versus not pumping. Because one of the things that kind of came up during all this was some of the wearable pump companies um, and those are pumps that go in your shirt and you don't, they don't have the tubes, you don't have the little portable container, um, were giving away pumps. And these are like four or $500 pumps and they were giving them away to healthcare workers. And so there was kind of that information coming in, but nobody was really seeing like, how are people making the decisions and mm. what are the actual sources of information that people have besides just the pump companies being like, hey, yeah, here's a pump. Uh, so... With that, how long do you think you'll be collecting data? Is this something that we should include a link to on our show notes when we post this? 
Uh, we are hoping to start the analysis next week. So we are, almost <laughs> at IRB, we are almost at IRB capacity for okay, allowable good. recruitment numbers mm -hmm. for IRB. I think we're like 22, 23 under right now. How are you going to approach publishing, sharing, talking about it on your podcast? Um, I, it'll absolutely come up on the podcast. I think the first place that probably we'll aim to get it out on is going to be the blog. Mm. So that you've got the the visuals right there. She's the and mastermind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love graphs. I love graphs. Kara um, has mastered the infographics. So I haven't I mastered. I tinker with infographics. So, right. But the, it's a good place. to The blog's a better place than the podcast to share the infographs. So episode three is coming out and it's going to be about Cecilia's work. So give us a preview. Sure. So we can come back to this later, but I, I wanted to just point out that Anne is also leading a whole bunch of efforts on COVID-19 related work. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on. We're all involved. The episode, I mean, it's, it's going to be a little bit of, you know, of a break, I think, from the COVID related work, um, which we will come back to in a future episode, but we recorded it right before the shutdowns began. So we really focused more on sort of my original work and sort of where that went and really it's you know it's a similar story i suppose for all three of us there's different ways in which we're entangled in our work i brought a an infant to grad school that's how i started and you know in hungary most people did so in terms of culturally most people did breastfeed in hungary not for necessarily long or exclusively but it was sort of part of more part of the culture i think than in some other settings but i only really breastfed because my husband went and got a book when I was having a hard time. So I really had no idea. You know, it was basically set up for failure like most Americans at the time. And my first child was born in 2000. So it was like not exactly the most friend, breastfeeding friendly environment in the U.S. at all. And so, you know, I mean, culturally, I kind of knew, you know, breastfeeding seemed like a good idea, but I didn't really know much about it and wasn't particularly wedded to it at all. Didn't really know anything about how it related to sleep or, or any of that. And like I said, I was struggling and, you know, of course we were handed formula bags and all that good stuff. I'm really setting you up for success, you know, in the hospital, yeah. uh, no support whatsoever. And so I was sort of like ready to throw in the towel. My husband was like, hang on, you know, um, he comes from not a breastfeeding family. So it was, you know, just, I guess the fact that we were both bio majors probably. And he was like, you know, let me go check out some books. Like, let's see if we can, you know, fix this before we just go down the formula route. Um, so really that was completely coincidental. Didn't really know much about it. And similarly, we kind of were like, oh, well, there are other mammals that seem to be doing something similar. <laughs> we kind of knew that. But like I said, you know, I mean, not at night, there one of us was informed. And then the sleep stuff, you know, we kind of, again, like we did what we were told to do which they said to put the kid in the crib and the kid didn't stay in the crib and we were like oh i guess you know you mean baby jail baby jail yeah we well we didn't know what that was i you know remember like i was 
I was pretty new to the US, right? So I'm still like learning what these people are doing around us and you know, what we were being told to like be like a good quote unquote American, like you're supposed to comply with. And you know, also in Hungary, it's very authoritarian. You just follow whatever the doctors tell you to do. And if you don't, they may not treat you. That was my childhood experience. So, you know, you gotta be careful with that stuff. Anyway, so I was very new to any of that. And then, you know, I thought, well, I was interested in, you know, sort of various embodiment stuff with pregnancy, postpartum, and 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 was doing sort of bioanthro seminars and sociocultural seminars at the same time. And I was like, well, let's see if I want to, you know, I want to do an ethnography on that period. Um, and, you know, I knew I was interested in breastfeeding, but didn't really, you know, it was really just kind of what people wanted to talk about that, you know, mm-hmm. so that's what I talk about in the podcast is, you know, this is where the data really led me. And that's, that's just what I followed. And then kind of continued along that line and, and realized, you know, pretty quickly early on that really there was no ethnography, you know, mm-hmm. so there was very, you know, there was this very fragmented landscape. There were these great bioanthros doing work, but like, where were the sociocultural? Like well, right you know, I didn't know he at the time. So, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it was like, I, it was really Jim McKenna and Helen oh, yeah. Ball's work. Mm-hmm. I saw there was this other work and they were integrating some of the social pieces, but you know, where were sort of the, like the social anthro of reproduction was a very strong part of anthropology and is still and has grown but at that time you know breastfeeding was really not much of a feature of that literature at all you know there was a lot on birth there's a lot on you know pregnancy there's a lot on infertility decisions about whether to become pregnant all of that was much much bigger part of the literature and there's really not much going on 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 this side at all and so i sort of like out there kind of like hi i'm gonna do this work there were no monographs really that were like i mean so it was just it was all kind of new and you know i'm interested in breastfeeding and its interactions with other things along you know in the entire spectrum i suppose so i always had pretty broad interests and then sleep was something that just kept coming up so i had to I kind of had to focus on it. it was sort of like telling me to to do that kind of work now that you mention it um and you're all here together i remember ea was part of or put together a, an hba seminar or like a whatever the main thing was it was on breast milk it was like the year i remember thinking breast milk is the new cortisol because everybody was <laughs> doing biomarkers of breast milk but i don't remember there being pieces from mother's experiences of breastfeeding and some of the experiences that EA that you mentioned about I think it was you and on also mentioned about being able to supply enough milk I had triplets so that was a chronic issue in our household and I I got so excited when that session happened and and wanted to hear more of that I think breastfeeding is an inherent it's one of these inherently interesting subjects so it's it's really odd what you're saying is odd that this hasn't been done before it was a division. I mean, I think this is one of the things that we do that, you know, just hasn't, hadn't been done before we kind of teamed up, you know, we were pursuing different pieces. And then, you know, these fortuitous introductions occurred. And really, we started joining forces and having these kinds of conversations. So the conversation that we we were having, you know, ultimately led to our collaborative book, you know, Breastfeeding New Anthropological Approaches, because there hadn't 
been anything like that in a very long time. And the previous sort of, uh, you know, effort was done in a very different framework. So we really, you know, we, we were always interested in having conversations that bring people together so that we can share knowledge, you know, both within anthropology and to broader audiences. I think that's been one of the key issues that we've pursued and, and that we, we all try to do in our own individual work and and together. But you're right. I think even though breastfeeding is clearly interesting in the United States, breastfeeding also has a very complicated and controversial kind of history. And that's, you know, that's kind of other pieces of my work I talk about in the podcast as well. Yeah. So it's very it is rich. not a surprise. It is not a surprise that it was sort of overlooked, even within anthropology. You know, it is not at all a surprise. You know, it was not the kind of thing that people were particularly interested in. I think it really matters who does anthropology and the kind of cultural background that we all bring to it. And so, you know, anthropology being what it is, you know, kind of growing out of its sort of colonial roots and coming really from Western, white, middle and upper middle class settings. I mean, it is no surprise that breastfeeding was not like the hot topic of the day. Um, but, you know, I think it's, that's been changing. I think it's been changing. And, and it's really just about figuring out, you know, how to keep bringing it into conversations where it might be otherwise overlooked. And to that point, I'll just add, like, we really felt like in the conversations and many of the controversies, like these public controversies around infant feeding, critiques of the breast as best movement, and um, some of these other more political, sort of really political issues and, and social issues didn't bring in any cross-cultural sort of comparison, any ecological or evolutionary perspective. These kinds of tools that we have as anthropologists to bring more nuanced and more complexity into the ways that we're describing, you know, how different infant feeding decisions are made and what these practices look like through time and space. Those are really important perspectives. And yet, you know, when we when we see kind of like the news headlines and what is being promoted in the New York Times parenting section, et cetera, et cetera, it's often very, very biased towards white middle class women's um, critiques of infant feeding or, you know, kind of their experiences. And so I think that's another real value that anthropology brings is like, you know, EA's work, for example, kind of understanding that human milk looks really different in populations who are adapted to different kinds of extreme environments. And what does that tell us about you know, our, our human story, that some of the work done in response to an article on Alla Maternal Nursing in Humans, kind of this conversation around, oh yeah, like moms, you know, in these hunter-gatherer tribes are totally like sharing breastfeeding. It's like so common and mundane. They don't even like have a name for it or talk about it because it's just like what they do all the time. I think those anthropological sensitivities and I think anthropology more than almost any other discipline that's beginning to change in public health with some of the social determinants of health and these discourses around that. Anthropology has always had the, the language and the tools to be able to integrate human biology and culture in nuanced ways and, and comparative ways. It's a really valuable perspective to bring to the public. And in some ways, kind of, Chris, about um, going back specifically to workshop, we mostly brought in outside people to kind of talk about milk. And the framing of that was, here's what's known about milk and here's how milk is talked about in nutritional circles here's what anthropology brings is terms of this global focus, really challenging this idea that human milk is homogeneous. I was just saying like, 
human milk's a part of human biological variation. We don't bat an eye at thinking about birth weight or height or anything like, or blood pressure as human biological variation. Yet there's been a lot of resistance to this idea in our field. And so I think that's one of the things that like I'm certainly passionate about. And I think it really illustrates how work like the three of us do collaboratively is really important in terms of framing these biocultural questions for both the biology and the culture are influencing the production of logical phenotype. Social rules are influencing that as well. And then it has these long-term implications in terms of developmental programming and even uh, health disparities tying back to, to Anjali's point. And so it seems, I think it's abundantly clear that you three work very well together, both I think on maybe a friendship level, that's an assumption, a research level, and then of course now through this podcast. And I think to, to kind of wrap things up, I would like to just do the technical podcast question because Chris and I wanted to riff <laughs> on how we do podcasts and what's successful and what's not. And so you know, sometimes it's tough for Chris and I, and it's just two of us to schedule everything and then making sure the promotion gets done, the editing gets done and all of that fun stuff. So what is the process that you three have adopted for this podcast and how do you break up the work amongst yourselves? And do you force somebody else to edit your own voice so you don't have to listen to it? <laughs> Key question. <laughs> I'll, I'll start first. Well, we're, we're new at this still, right? We're still relatively new at this. And, you still uh, seem like you have put way more thought up front into well, your podcast than we have done to ours. I have collaborators at UNC Chapel Hill. They do this Academes podcast. So Sarah Birkin and Whitney Robinson, which I love, and they had been running for like a year. And I listened to it. I was like, their sound quality is really good. Their editing is good. And they like have like a really like interesting niche. So I, I asked for advice. First was like, know your audience and have a concept about what you want, you know, really what you want to say and why you want to use this platform. And then some tips on the production aspect of it, which none of us have and have any background in that. So we record on separate tracks and then sent, we hire an editor off of, um, he's like a freelance editor, sound editor to kind of put it together and cut in the music and stuff. I mean, that technical piece, it's, and it's all on us and we, we don't have any funding. <laughs> so how really? do you pay for your editor? I'm so curious. Yeah, he has a little bit of funding, but um, <laughs> she, like through her science communication that she's, I'll let her talk about that. But really, it's like we're trying to maximize what skills we can bring to it. And, but we use like a TEMI, T-E-M-I trans transcription, which is really cost effective. And then I think in terms of format, we've just been playing with a little bit, you know, we thought we would do the introduction, you know, introduce each of us about what, who we are. It's like a, a good start and then bring in, start to bring in other folks in different disciplines. So we have, we have, you know, all the contributors to our book uh, and other up and coming scholars who, who do this kind of work we're planning. We'd like to interview them. Who are they to tease well, our listeners? <laughs> We have, um, so I'm looking forward to int um, interviewing Shan Halcrow, who is a bioarchaeologist. She she's curates, in New Zealand? She's in New Zealand, yeah. Um, she does the Childhood Bioarchaeology blog, which is awesome, and um, she's fantastic, and I've had a, a couple of collaborations with her. Um, I think we're looking uh, to a couple of uh, biological anthropologists that look at human milk immunology. We thought that'd be timely. I don't know, we have we have lots of folks. I also want to mention there are a few other anthropologists who have written ethnographies or in books on milk sharing. I didn't have a chance to acknowledge before. So Susan Falls um, wrote a book, White Gold, about milk sharing. Kristen Wilson wrote a book that uh, was published, I guess, in, within the last year or so called Others Milk. And uh, Beatrice Reyes Foster um, and her collaborators have another book on ethnographies of milk sharing. And um, there are certainly lots of other folks who are contributing to this, but we all agree it's a lot more work than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> 
EA, you have anything you want to say about the, the science communication that's funding some of the things in support of your of anthrolectology? I just put it on my credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Self-funded, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected, but also like not that you can use any of them right now anyway (laughs) i just want to say like there's a couple of things that i personally want to acknowledge um you know because i i was and i'm still completely overwhelmed by by other responsibilities but i just want to point out that the talent that these two women bring to this podcast is just unbelievable like the things that i didn't even know you know like you know the, the talent in design the talent in you know all the ways of logistically solving things that I can't even fully comprehend. I mean, it's just incredible. And and I so appreciated seeing, I mean, just like ideas about music. And I mean, there's just so many different aspects of this that I, I just did not really appreciate and was not led by me in any way whatsoever. So, you know, I just want to like shout out to these other two leaders of this. The creative effort is incredible. And also the EA is just like, hilarious i mean i I don't know like i think that the talent in like you know bringing like um a different kind of conversation you know i think i tend i tend towards overly serious and just kind of like well it's a nice balance and a nice rapport and it's good Mm -hmm. to have that variety and i also want to note comment like yeah your your music transitions were nice but i really like the segments that you guys have on uh, the technology can, t- can you yeah. tell us just a little bit about i mean I, we we could go on all day <laughs> and just tell people to actually listen to your podcast instead of talking about it but you have some cool segments that i, I have to figure out a way to steal those yeah that's all ea so she's a genius oh. <laughs> and also she likes to rant about products that have really bad science behind them <laughs> So Anshley made these like beautiful logos and found all this music and set up like our scripts and all of that. And I, and I feel like I'm the person who was like, and I have a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> but you do rant well. But I do yes. rant well. And yeah, we kind of just pick something and, and I rant about the lack of science behind it. That's really useful. I like that. And it really <laughs> oh, hits a good note between... <laughs> the technical expertise that can overwhelm listeners and what it is they're actually paying attention to and need need a an expert that they trust to to pre-digest for them so that's that was that's a great segment i like it a lot no i mean how many times do we text rant to one another honestly yeah. we just need to turn mm-hmm. to the podcast less help, that's less helpful to the public <laughs> but it's helpful uh, to me. one is on alcohol test strips where uh <laughs> a bunch and tested my milk and various other things i could find in my kitchen <laughs> awesome that's a, that's a teaser for our next mm. one how much alcohol is in your in your milk tune in to find out <laughs> yeah let's not give it all away let's not give it away so you have well two episodes and you have a third one coming out what are you all hoping to be do you have a regular frequency in mind we had hoped this first year we would do one monthly and we were actually in a place where we were considering like setting up some kind of patreon we're gonna still look for like grant funding i think mm. to see but um We've, we've suspended that idea now since we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think we'll do, we'll get it out when we can get them out. We usually close with asking people what they do for fun, but obviously it's podcasting, so. <laughs> and ranting on said podcast, so. which I just want to do that now. And that's um, all we have time for anyway. So. Anyway, so 
Thank you so much to Cecilia, EA, and Anjali for talking about Anthrolactology, a current blog and now a brand new podcast, which we will include all of this in our show notes for this episode. Thank you all so much for taking some time out today to chat with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed your podcast very much. So I feel very honored that we're here and able to share. All right. Thank you all so much and take care. You too. Thank you so much. Stay Stay safe. Bye.